I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about CanadaLand and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Hello, I'm Fatma Sayed, and I'm filling in for Jesse Brown on Shortcuts this week. Joining me from Calgary is Sean Holman, journalism professor at Mount Royal University, climate reporter and researcher of government secrecy. Sean, welcome to Shortcuts. Thanks so much for having me. It's a real pleasure. On the show this week, it's election season and politicians are back to their usual ways, manipulation via doctored videos and partisan hyperbolics. But don't fret, Twitter is here to be our lord and savior of truth. And Sean, if there was any doubt about the state of Canada's climate coverage, we didn't have to look any further than the front pages of Canada's newspapers. You did the study, we're going to talk about it. Awesome. I can't wait to dig in. This episode is brought to you by Sarah Grahovac, Julie Moon... Alex Sahara, Lucy Sherry, Shannon P, Dave Tiefel, Jasmine Osborne Fortier, and Patrick. Hi, I'm Patrick. I'm a civil servant from Halifax, and I support Candleland because we need an alternative to corporate media and something that holds corporate media to account. You probably guessed it, I'm a fan of shortcuts. But more importantly, I support Candleland because I want Jesse to kick the rebel's ass. 
there's a lot to talk about in this election. Housing policy, economic recovery, vaccines, Afghanistan. But one of the biggest stories of this week was a tweet. Well, you probably don't have to be told this by now, but... Believe it or not, you can't trust everything you read on social media. Liberal Finance Minister Christia Freeland tweeted a video of Aaron O'Toole flagged as manipulated media. The year-old video seems to show conservative leader Aaron O'Toole speaking in favor of two-tier health care. Twitter quickly slapped this label on it, flagging it as manipulated media. Christia Freeland posted a tweet on Sunday that showed a 35-second edited interview with Aaron O'Toole that indicated he supports private and for-profit health care within our system. The video was edited together from an interview he did during his leadership run last summer. Here's the edited video. Would you be prepared to allow provinces to experiment with real health care reform, including the provision of private, for-profit, and non-profit healthcare options inside of universal coverage? Yes. Now I'll elaborate a little bit more. (laughs) We can't have just one old model that is increasingly becoming inefficient and we have to find public-private synergies and that capital will come in to, to, to drive efficiencies. I've run on this for several years now. And now here's part of the video that was unedited. If we want to see that innovation, we have to find public-private synergies and make sure that universal access remains paramount. The part where Aaron O'Toole says universal access remains paramount got cut from Freeland's version. Twitter placed a manipulated media tag on this video soon after it was posted. A harken back to Donald Trump's tweets in the 2020 election, which is weird because Freeland is for sure the anti-Trump. She fought against him on NAFTA for one. Both Freeland's English and French versions of the tweet received the warning label, and Trudeau's account also retweeted the edited videos. Twitter hasn't said why they put the label on this particular video, but according to their rules... And I'm quoting now, in order for content to be labeled or removed under this policy, we must have a reason to believe that media or the context in which media are presented are significantly and deceptively altered or manipulated. The conservatives are mad about this, and they're calling for an investigation by Elections Canada, arguing the video was a violation of the Canada Election Act, saying that liberals have intentionally altered the original video to make it materially misrepresent the position of the Conservative Party. The party also sent a second letter to the election commissioner on Monday, writing that the manipulated media, warning from Twitter, underscores the need for a quick remedial action. Anyway, the punditry has gone wild, and we're now talking about it on Shortcuts. So, Sean, what's your view on all of this? Well, I I took a look at the video like so many other Canadians did. And I have to say that most Canadians watching this video would have easily recognized that it was edited. The jump cuts are are really completely and absolutely clear here. (laughs) I mean, yes, it's been edited, But there's no attempt to disguise the fact that it's been edited. And to be honest, a lot of politicians during election time take their opponents' comments out of context on a fairly regular basis. So I really wonder what Twitter is intending to do here. I mean, 
My understanding is Twitter is concerned about manipulated videos. They're concerned about things like deep fakes, right? Mm -hmm. but, but this doesn't really cross that particular bar. It's not like what happened in 2019 when House Speaker Nancy Pelosi was at an American Progress event. The video was slowed down to make it appear that she was slurring her words. We want to give this president the opportunity to do something historic for our country. That's, that's a problem. And someone could have easily been tricked into thinking that that was a real video. But no one in this particular video that the liberals have posted would be tricked into thinking that this wasn't edited. And I should point out that the video was posted in a thread, like the full video was at the bottom of the thread if you went along. So when someone uses the word manipulation, for me, it suggests an actual misrepresentation of something that was recorded on camera. But if you're posting the full link then are you really manipulating like his comments if you're yeah. also making them available uh, for full on display? <laughs> Absolutely, right? You know, and, and as I say, there wasn't really an attempt to hide that, right? So it, it's really unclear to me what Twitter is trying to accomplish with this. And meanwhile, I think it's important to point out that Twitter at the same time allows all kinds of much more insidious and less obvious misinformation and disinformation to spread online, including climate science rejectionism, which is a real problem and has created enormous challenges within democratic systems actually trying to successfully address climate change. So, you know, this really seems to be a minor issue and one that the conservatives are making political hay out of, perhaps unjustifiably. Well, I guess this begs the question, like, why did Twitter feel the need to uh, label it as mm -hmm. uh, with a warning label at all? Um, I mean, I don't want to veer into conspiracy theory realm at all. But according to Politico, there are two Harper-era staffers that are potentially implicated in this saga, Kate Harrison and Michelle Austin. They both worked at Summa Strategies. Harrison is still the vice chair there. Michelle Austin now heads up policy at Twitter Canada. If you watch the video, the lady who asks Erin O'Toole the question is actually Kate Harrison. To quote Politico, Austin, the theory goes, did her favorite party a favor when the liberals weaponized O'Toole's response by tweeting a selectively clipped video, and Twitter subsequently slapped a manipulated media warning on the tweets. When Politico asked Austin for a response, she referred them to Twitter communications, who gave us a generic, this fits our guidelines kind of response. Now, of course, Twitter's been doing this for a long time, right? You talked about Nancy Pelosi, I mentioned Trump. In early 2020, a lot of Donald Trump's tweets during election time were slapped with warning labels, part of the onslaught of misinformation. But I guess the question is, does it really sway anything? Like, people are going to believe what they want, right? Will a Twitter label actually sway political discourse? I think it does, right, to a certain extent. And it does create this both-sidedism that I do worry about. When we think about misinformation and disinformation in politics, a lot of the worst offenders are really on the right 
side of the political spectrum. So I, I think what troubles me about this is it allows conservatives, it allows the right to say, well, look, the other side is doing it too. And I just don't think that's particularly helpful. So I actually disagree with you a little bit. And the reason is because I don't think we're talking about facts here. We're talking about opinions. Mm -hmm. The video in question is about Aaron O'Toole's opinion on public and private health care. So when Twitter calls it manipulated media, I'm not sure it's a fact or a piece of information that is being manipulated. It's just a portion of his over two minute long opinion that's been cut down to 30 seconds for political gain. And this is what politics is, unfortunately. It is the mess of partisan hyperbolics. Like people are going to pick out sound bites and try and sway voters' beliefs and opinions of a certain leader. So I actually disagree with you. I don't think both sidism is at play. I don't even think misinformation is at play. I actually think this is a complete overreaction by everyone, by the politicians, by the conservative party, by Twitter especially. And unfortunately, because I believe in a better political world than we have, um, the the game of politics— I will dream dream along with you on that one. (laughs) But unfortunately, the game of politics allows any party to do this, any party to pick this out and and use this into an attack ad or whatever you want to call what Christia Freeland posted. Totally. But I I do think that the Twitter flag is a sign and signifier, right? It's a sign and signifier of spreading misinformation and disinformation in some way. But there's no transparency around it. So how can we be sure that it is a sign and signifier of misinformation at this point in time? I completely agree with you on that. But what I'm saying is how it could be read by the public, right? That look, the liberals are manipulating information, right? They're manipulating something to convince voters of something that is not actually actually true. And that's where I think the Twitter flag creates a a potential problem, right? Because you're quite right, it doesn't actually really cross that same line that I think we're thinking of when it comes to other kinds of videos that have been manipulated in much more dramatic and much more problematic ways. Yeah. I want to get to some of the political responses because I also think they're part of this melodrama that we're talking about. So, for example, the liberals, of course, are standing by this video. Uh, You know, Freeland told the London Free Press, I feel that our tweet was and is transparent and fair. I am comfortable and confident that the highlights that we presented accurately reflected the full answer. Trudeau, in his defense, he decided to flip the table to Aaron O'Toole because we are in a political election campaign after all. What's really important here is that in the middle of a pandemic, Aaron O'Toole came out unequivocally in support of private health care in terms of for-profit health care. Meanwhile, Aaron O'Toole said that he 100% supports the public and universal healthcare system. In fact, it's been the backbone we relied through the pandemic. He actually didn't address the video like he just addressed the position I'm in shocked. this video. I'm absolutely shocked. Considering the Conservative Party's like pleas to the election commissioner. And then NDP leader Jagmeet Singh called the edited video troubling and said it underscored the need to combat online misinformation. He said that he wanted to see strong laws in place that do not allow misinformation to be spread. He said it was really disconcerting, though, that the current party in power is engaging in exactly what we need to see ending, which I thought was interesting and hilarious at the same time. 
Was it deceptive then? I guess, like, what's our conclusion here, Sean? Like, is the video deceptive? Is Jagmeet Singh right? Is it a sign that the Liberal Party is playing into the problem? I think it's hard to say that it's deceptive. Was it biased? Absolutely. Was it perhaps something that I don't personally like to see in politics? Yes, but I'm not sure, given the bigger problems of misinformation and disinformation that we're dealing with as a society, that this rises to that same kind of level. See, I wish that the media coverage of this entire saga used the words that you just used, that yes, it was biased, it was consciously edited, rather than reusing and regurgitating Twitter's word of manipulated. So, for example, the National Post headline, Freelance manipulated video on Twitter shows liberals' desperation. The Western Standard called their story, Freeland Post manipulated video of O'Toole. We know how politics works. And unfortunately, this is how politics works. So I guess my main takeaway is... Maybe we want politics to be better, which, God, please, someone bring Aaron Sorkin, a better version of Aaron Sorkin, to our times and and help fix politics and make it better. If only he could script our (laughs) politics, right? Yeah, but with more women and more racialized folks. Absolutely. Yeah. And also, maybe we do need a serious conversation about online content moderation. You know, I want to know why Twitter felt the need to slap this. It isn't like any of the past videos that they have slapped with warning labels in the past, mostly in the States. So I want to know what exactly went through their mind in making this decision. Yeah, and the challenge is, is that we probably won't get a clear answer to that question because Twitter is a private company and there's no way of knowing anything that they won't want to voluntarily tell us unless we get some kind of leak uh, from that organization. It's a problem. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody Half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does Help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? 
Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. So, Sean, on this show, people duly note things that deserve more attention. What do you got for us today? Well, Canada is actually one of the most secretive democracies in the world, but it's really difficult to prove that because it's always difficult proving a negative. To get a sense of that secrecy, I duly note that the BC Freedom of Information and Privacy Association recently launched a database of over 6,500 stories that were broken using the federal government's Access to Information Act. That's the law that allows us to request otherwise secret government records. But reading through that database, what's really troubling to me is that Canadians shouldn't have actually needed an access to information request to obtain many of those documents. They they should have just been publicly available. We have a country, we have a government where the top decision-making body, cabinet, conducts all its discussions in secret. That is crazy. That is nuts. We should really be doing better than that. And the BC Freedom of Information and Privacy Association have done Canadians a real service by launching this database. And journalist Stanley Trump has done Canadians a real service by actually assembling it. So I'd encourage all listeners to duly note that database for themselves at FIPA, FIPA.bc.ca forward slash transparency dash spotlight. I so duly note this, and I'm so grateful to organizations that are still pushing on increasing transparency in this country because I have so many FOIs that I'm still waiting on, and they hurt my soul to think about. I mean, the only way I can describe it is you have several levels of government making decisions behind closed doors, and we are getting very tailored responses about what's actually going on into the rooms. So in the words of Aaron Burr from the musical Hamilton, which I love, we want to be in the room where it happens and tell you what's going on. And we cannot because our FOI system is broken. So thank you to this database for existing. Duly noted. Okay, uh, Sean, big news if you haven't been paying attention. The Paralympics started this week, and I want to talk about this because I feel like we all got really into the Olympics, and as a country, we really enjoyed that experience. Every medal was celebrated. We were supporting our athletes. It was such a fun time. We all blissfully ignored the bigger problems at play at the Tokyo Olympics because, you know, we need some fun. There's still a pandemic going on. So I want to tell people that the Paralympics started this week. There's 128 Canadian athletes competing in 18 of the 22 sports. And I really need y'all to be hyped and support these people because they're incredible. For the first time ever, they're getting primetime coverage in North America this summer. It's literally the first time both CBC in Canada and an American Network in the U.S. will air the Paralympics in the evenings. They have never gotten this much TV time before. And Canada's already won two medals. On Monday, 
Canadian world record holder and five-time Paralympic swimming medalist, Aurelie Rivard. She's 23. She's Canada's most decorated female Paralympian. She was born with an underdeveloped left hand. She won a bronze medal in the women's S10 50-meter freestyle final. So yay her. Amazing. And there's so many cool people to watch. Uh, Patrick Anderson, he plays in wheelchair basketball. He's 42 years old from Fergus, Ontario. He's considered the greatest wheelchair basketball player in history. And this might be the last time, his last shot at another Olympic medal. Canada's Paralympic women's sitting volleyball team, they fought to get some airtime after their preliminary games were not aired. And now we get to see their games because they won. It's also political, like the Afghanistan flag was flown, and then there's a refugee team that walked out. Like, isn't that, that's so powerful. I want people to pay attention. Duly noted. So we recently got a very dire report about climate change from the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. It basically told us that some of the changes that we're seeing around the world are irreversible but we can slow the rate of change. And to do that, we got to do major things. We have to change our lifestyles. We're seeing the effects of that in Canada already with wildfires in BC and Northern Ontario affecting air quality. I don't know if you guys remember, but a few, I think it was about a month ago, Toronto had the second worst air quality in the world, not just in the country because of wildfires. On any given day, we can argue that unfortunately... Climate is underreported. So I don't want to overlook the valuable work that some climate reporters in this country are doing, and there are many. But Sean, you actually looked at how Canadian media responded to the IPCC report. And unfortunately, the response was muted. You wrote a piece for the TAI. You compared the coverage of the report on the front pages of Canada's 10 largest circulation newspapers and compared that to a study of the top 10 circulation papers in the United States. Can you tell the people what you discovered? Yeah, it was really, really troubling and surprising. So as you mentioned, I took a look at these front pages of newspapers from August 9th and August 10th, which was around the date that the IPCC released its so-called Code Red report. Mm -hmm. And this is really important to take a look at these front pages because they're a real clear window into the priorities, the newsroom priorities of the people who are making the decisions as to what to put on those front pages. And what was really surprising to me was that American newspapers devoted double the front page space to the IPCC report as Canadian newspapers did. That's not to say that we didn't have a couple standouts in Canada. We did. The Toronto Star did a fabulous job. It devoted just over 50% of its front page space on August 10th to the Code Red report. But most Canadian newspapers really failed Uh, in comparison to their American counterparts. I mean, USA Today, for example, major newspaper, their headline was stark warnings for the warming planet, almost half of the front page space, big, huge photo of fires in Greece, 
signaling to their readers that this is a really vitally important issue. And most Canadian newspapers just didn't do that. And sadly, a lot of them were from the post-media chain. Sean, has there ever been a front page on the climate change in this country that has been memorable? That's a good question. I would actually say that the Toronto Star's recent front page actually was very memorable. To just describe it for everyone, it has a big, huge headline, code red. Just above it, there's a splash photo of a firefighter amidst flames in a forest. There's various different images of climate disaster all around the world. And there are actually three really strong subheads beneath that headline. That's really the kind of seriousness that we should expect from Canadian newspapers and from the Canadian media at large in terms of coverage of this issue. And for the most part, we're just not really getting it to the same extent that is the case in the United States. Well, I will say like the two front pages that I can remember just from this year alone, one of them was from the LA Times of the wildfire. Uh, it was very, very powerful. And then the second one was regarding the IPCC report on The Guardian. They had the photo of the woman standing in a cloud of orange with wildfires behind her in Athens, just holding onto her heart and just her face expression was haunting. And then underneath, I think they had a headline, you know, global climate crisis inevitable or something like that. It was just, that was it. The entire front page was dedicated to climate change. And I don't see a lot of that happening in Canada. In your study, you mentioned post-media. Some of their papers didn't cover this at all on the front yeah. page, right? Despite it being like making global headlines. Absolutely. That's that's absolutely right. So the province uh, and the Toronto Sun didn't put it on their front pages. And that's really troubling. Um, now, I should say that two American newspapers also didn't put it on their front pages during the period that I examined. Mm -hmm. But one of those newspapers did the day after. So we are kind of doing worse on that Front when it comes to putting those stories on the front page or ignoring those stories uh, in comparison to American newspapers. And this is the other thing that kind of kills me. The post-media papers that did put it on their front page um, only did so to promote a story about how the oil and gas industry in this country says that this IPCC report is no problem. They're going to do just fine. I mean, that's really sad, right? And it's really doing a disservice to readers. We should be, as journalists, ensuring that the stories that we highlight for them are the most important stories of the day, the stories that will help them make better decisions. And... Canadian newspapers really failed to do that on an eve of an election that really, in a lot of ways, should be all about climate change in a country that is one of the top exporters of fossil fuels in the world. And that's still on fire. Like parts of the country, it's still on fire. I think we need more nuanced climate reporting, but I am going to be generous and say there are people in this country trying to do that. Like, you Absolutely. Know, you, like there's... There's the narwhal, there's the tie, there's 
there are reporters and and newsrooms that are trying to add nuance back into climate reporting and, and make it a bigger issue in a country that has a lot of work still to do on this file. But I think the bigger issue, and not to sound like a broken record, but there is a culture of secrecy, especially when it comes to climate and science reporting, that is really debilitating, I think, or, or really holding back some of the work media could do to further this narrative. You know, I'm a huge fan of Sarah Cox. She's a reporter at the Narwhal out in BC. And she does fantastic work. She's incredible. And and recently I've been reading her tweets where she compares her experiences talking to American scientists versus Canadian scientists. So last week she she talked about how she just cold called a American government biologist who, unlike the government biologist she's spoken to in British Columbia, her words did not have to get permission to do an interview, answered the questions directly, and looked up the data for me. Science, not spin. That's what Sarah Cox said. Transparent and accessible. So refreshing. She gives another example a few days later. She said she asked to interview a biologist working for a BC Crown Corporation. The communications manager asked her to email questions. I mean, I'm a climate reporter, first and foremost, and I completely understand this experience. I have messaged many a scientist or a, you know, environment ministry person trying to just understand an issue or trying to just get some nuance, some detail, some data and being just completely shut out, you know, door closed, no response or worse, getting like a paragraph that you know has been vetted by layers and layers of bureaucracy and approved by every level of of that organization. It's concerning to me. I think we, we have a broader cultural issue as well that is stopping climate change from being on our front pages more. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. I actually used to be a communications officer for the government before I became a journalist. So I went from the dark side to the light side. (laughs) And I remember when I started my career as a communications officer, I would actually arrange interviews between journalists and scientists and experts in government on a fairly regular basis. And that just doesn't happen anymore. We've really had a communications clampdown in this country that's the result of the expansion of the public relations state. And it's part of secrecy in this country that's really stifling our democracy, not to mention the work the media does. You know, we we often talk about the problems and, you know, you and I are are big proponents of increasing transparency in all institutions across this country. I worry about the solutions, though, right? Uh, Just this Monday, the epidemiologist in Toronto, Dr. David Fisman, announced that he's resigning from Ontario's COVID-19 science advisory table. And the reason I'm bringing him up in this conversation is because I think during the pandemic, doctors and scientists have done an incredible job as volunteers, not even as, you know, on the government payroll. They're volunteers who are helping shape COVID-19 policy and practices and procedures And they have been very open with the media. 
They have been very forthcoming with information, with data, with their phone number. They have answered a lot of questions. And we are in their debt because I don't think we would have gotten the information that we have or reported the kinds of pandemic stories that we have if it weren't for the generosity of these doctors and scientists being willing to talk to us. So his departure was a big deal because he was one of the most outspoken people and the most accessible to media. In his resignation letter, he writes about how increasingly uncomfortable he had become with the degree to which political considerations appear to be the driving outputs from these COVID-19 decisions, or at least the degree to which these decisions are not shared transparently with the public. He spoke about how he was in the uncomfortable position of repeatedly dissenting publicly from table guidance through the media is how I'm reading it. And that's what forced his resignation. It was the culture of government bureaucracy and the political considerations that made him uneasy and he left. So between the pandemic, between the climate change, science journalism is so important right now. And we are relying, unfortunately, on the generosity of people who are comfortable talking to the media as opposed to the institutions that should be dealing with us with a two-way communication. How do we fix this? (laughs) Well, I think it's a cultural change in a lot of ways, right? I mean, there are the public relations structures that have uh, been built up in government uh, that are preventing this kind of openness. There's also the tradition of cabinet secrecy in this country that has really had filter down effects throughout both the political system and the bureaucratic system. More people need to speak out. There needs to be more by law proactive disclosure from governments at all levels in terms of their public records. And there's also another problem, though, that I think we should pay attention to. And the problem is we're simply not collecting a lot of the information that's needed. Yeah, the data deficit is Uh, real. The data deficit is so real in this country. It's a race-based data, right? Uh, During the pandemic would be a really good example of that. We in Canada just weren't collecting race-based data when it comes to COVID-19 infections, um, whereas the United States was. And that meant that we really couldn't identify some of the worst hit communities and service those communities. It was really troubling. All this to say, if we've learned one thing from the pandemic and the climate change together, it's that science journalism matters and we need to facilitate it. As a media institution and as a public more, we need to demand it more. We need to demand access to it more. And and we need to demand that people talk about it more because, God, we need this information if we're going to fix everything. Well, and I think we forget that democracy is based on the idea that people will make rational and empathetic decisions using truthful information. And that's why misinformation and disinformation is so problematic and lack of information is so problematic is because it cuts right to the heart of how democracy is supposed to work. And it damages that heart in really profound ways. And climate change And the out-of-control pandemic that we are living through right now are both symptoms of that damage. Mm -hmm. Um, And we really better address it. 
That's Shortcuts this week. Thank you so much, Sean, for joining me. Canada Land is on Twitter at Canada Land. And I'm also on Twitter, regrettably. I'm at Fatma B. Sayed. And you can hear me every Tuesday throughout the election on The Backbench, the political podcast I host, which dropped an episode this week on Afghanistan and affordability. So check it out. Sean, where can people find you and follow your amazing work? I am also on Twitter, somewhat unfortunately, at Sean M. Holman. And that's my account. (laughs) (laughs) Follow Sean, everyone. This episode is produced by Kevin Sexton with additional production by Tristan Capacione. Our managing editor is Kieran Outhorn. The music is by so-called syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at CFUV.ca. Strangely, okay, weird thing, okay? My first journalism job, so to speak, was as the news director at CFUV. Oh, that's amazing. Small world. I know, right? Small world. If you like what we do, you'd like to receive ad-free versions of all Canada Land's podcasts, please support us by hitting the link in our show notes or go to canadaland.com forward slash join. And we're out. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.